So if y'all would stand with me as we read from Matthew chapter 5. We're stepping back into Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 31, says this. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it's God's throne or by earth because it's because it's his footstool or by Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king do not swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no anything more than this is from the evil one let's pray our father we're grateful for your word the fact that you are a God that speaks and things happen. There's no distance in between what you say and what you do. You're absolutely trustworthy with every single word that you speak. Father, I pray that today as we spend our time here in your word, that you would make us people that are like that, Father. Make us dependable like you are. Uh, And I pray that we would be reminded the only way that we can reflect your goodness, Lord, your absolute dependability, It's for us to reflect on your dependability, to think about it, to let it soak in, to believe it, and to let it change us. Help us to be people, not just that speak words that are believable, but help us to fundamentally be people that believe your words, every one of them. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can take your seat. Relationships are powerful. Relationships uh, lie really at the core of what it is to be human. All of us as people are born and are created with this sense and this need of relational connectedness. Solitary confinement is torture not because of what they do, but what they keep you from. And that's people just being alone and by yourself and not having that relational connectedness is enough to make somebody wither from the inside out. You may be an introvert in here and say, well, John, I don't like to be around folks all that much. Listen, what social media has done is it's shown that even introverts who don't want to be around people still can spend their time engaging with words and pictures and interaction and connection. It shows that even when you're free to be all by yourself, there's still something that draws you to connect with people. There's things that foster relationships, generosity, kindness, compassion, good deeds. There's things that frustrate relationships. 
anger, slander, gossip, envy? I think what our text is going to tell us here is I think there's one thing that frustrates relationships more than anything else. And that's lying. That's failing to tell the truth. You look at friendships that you have or have had, relationships, even the most solemn ones. You think of marriages. And what you find is that relationships can endure a whole bunch of wrong that's done to them. But one thing that causes this break in them can be a lack of trust, right? I forgive you for what you've done, but I don't think I can ever trust you. And if I can't trust your words or the things that you speak, then we can't have a relationship. At the root of our humanity is this relational connectedness. At the root of relational connectedness is the truth. At the root of truth is communication. At the root of communication is words. And so I hope that you'll see this. Um, There are no words that are just words. All words are vitally important. Technology can do a few things. Sometimes an advance in technology can erase problems. There's certain things that we don't have to be concerned about. Clean water, preservation of food, things like that, and they've been helped by technology. But sometimes technology can really highlight or unpack the importance of things. And I think that it's done that with words. That we're inundated with words, surrounded by words. They're all on our screens all the time. They fly across the highways. We talk to folks. And what technology has helped us see too is that uh, once you put something on the internet, it is out there. Words stick. They stay. They're important. And I think that's important for us to say because when we come to the Bible, when we come to texts like this, we are reminded um, that Jesus is not just somebody that came to the earth to do a bunch of good deeds. Jesus speaks. Right? Christianity is not just about mysticism, how it makes me feel on the inside, or just what Christ did, but it's what he says. So you go to the Gospel of Matthew, and it takes this story of his life, and what you find is Matthew has these five major discourses where it's these extended sermons or speaking of Jesus and what we wanted to do this year is to look at his word so throughout the rest of this year and the start of next we're going to fly over the narrative parts of the text but we're going to hike through his words and so we're going to spend uh, time here to just talk about the importance of Words And the reason why we want to do that in the gospel is that God is not silent when it comes to our use of words. Because God cares about the relationships that we have. So he's going to speak and he's going to shout and he's constantly going to instruct us about how we should live. So he's going to give rules to engagement. And so here's what I want to say. Uh, when folks say things like uh, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, um, that's partly true. It's not a religion in the sense that it's not just all about rules, but sometimes when we talk about it being a relationship, 
we forget that no, every relationship has rules to engagement. That rules aren't a bad thing. Rules help you and I to engage better with things. My wife and I were on a date night this past week. We sat down and there was this game on the table that we didn't know how to play. So the first thing that I did was I went on Google and I looked at the rules. The rules aren't the point of the game. The rules aren't the focus, but the rules help us to engage and to play with the game. So it's helpful to think of rules and the instruction that we get from God's word. The Bible is not a rule book, but it has lots of rules. It's helpful for us to think of rules as, as lenses on a glass or, or on glasses. The point of reading glasses is you're never going to be able to read what you want to read if you take off the glasses and look at the glasses. You're never going to get relationship with God if you take all the rules and just look at the rules. But those glasses or those rules help us focus on what's important, what he's trying to do. So we don't throw out the rules, but we use them. We put them on. And so Christ starts here, and we talked about Christ in the law a few weeks ago, but as he Uh, starts to talk about how it is that you and I are to live life. I just want to start out with this one point. And that's this. uh, God's intent helps us to understand his instructions. God's intent helps us to understand his instructions. So en route to getting a chance to talk about words, he's going to talk about a relationship that is created in a sense by words, or a promise, or an oath. Words are powerful. Next week, I'm going to marry a couple from the church. In a few months, somebody else from the church, and that'll be the seventh one that I've done this year. There's a lot of y'all that I look here and I see I married y'all. And what you find out is that you all were not a family. And one day, we all sat, well, y'all stood and the rest of the folks sat, and do you know what you did? You spoke words to each other. And after you spoke those words, do you know what you became? A family. Words are powerful. So en route to talking about the importance of our words, Jesus is going to help us see this. Look, God's intent helps us to understand our instructions. And the way that he's going to do that is he's going to use one of the most, uh, uh, one of the most, um, I'm trying to think of the word, solemn relationships that we have, marriage. Verse 31, it says this. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Uh, Before we get into this, I want to offer a bit of a disclaimer here, and that's this. Um, Divorce is a complex thing. This is not all the Bible has to say about divorce. So what that means is that sometimes when we find ourselves with complex things like this, we don't 
make a complex decision based on something so concise. Right? So as we preach each week, we're trying to take one text and say, what does this one text have to say to all of God's people? As you sit down and get counsel, what somebody does is say, no, not this, what does this one text have to say to all of God's people? People, but what does all of God's word have to say to this one person? So that means when we start to face things like this, sometimes it's better to come to a decision after counsel than just a 45-minute sermon. So I'm just saying that because I'm not going to be exhaustive on divorce. I'm just going to uh, walk through as we try to get to the point of, of the text. But here's the main thing that we see here. Jesus starts off, and in Matthew 5, he's trying to help folks engage with the rules of the laws that they see in God's Word. So he'll start off and say this, it's been said, or you've heard, and then he'll say this, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, Everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Here's what you see here. Jesus is setting up this contrast in what they heard and what he said, and there's lots that go into the word, but the most important thing that we see here is Jesus just doesn't uh, uh, contrast What's said about divorce, he contrasts the way that people even approach the topic. So the Pharisees would go to Deuteronomy 24, and what they would say is, if somebody wants to get a divorce, here's the process. So they talk about the process of divorce. Well, if you want to get a divorce, these are the steps that you have to go to. And our day would be like, well, you need a divorce lawyer and all this. A little bit of background, Deuteronomy 24 puts this into place because its aim is trying to protect the dignity of women. Long story short, it says that if a man finds indecency in his wife, he may divorce her. The indecency was largely understood to be sexual immorality, like Christ says here, but what you get is these two camps who instead of focusing on the purpose of marriage, spend their time on the process of divorce. Well, what does indecency mean? And so one would say, one group would say, um, it could be as small as if she burns a meal. So if you come home and the bottom of your cornbread is burnt like you don't like it, can send her away. One group was a little more stringent, but here's what it caused. People who had God's law were giving people permission to do things that God never intended for it uh, to be done. And in this day, the dignity of women was undermined. And they were sent away, brought back, sent away, brought back. So God puts this law in place, not just to have this law, but to protect the dignity of women. So that if a man wanted to send his wife away, he would say, listen, she is not your property. So if you really are going to send her away, make sure that that last kiss is a long one because it's going to be your last one. His aim was to protect, but people disregarded the intent and they spend their time debating the process. So what Jesus does is he talks about this complex 
issue is he doesn't spend his time talking about the process of divorce, but the purpose of marriage. He talks about this solemn relationship. And he talks about the fallout that can come if it's treated lightly. What can be produced instead of relationship with God and people being strengthened, it could actually lead people to be distanced from God and distanced from one another and have all of this fallout. And so Jesus didn't want these relationships to be destroyed, so he spends his time on the intent. We talked about it a few weeks ago. Uh, Vision, your behavior will never rise above your vision. I use this a few weeks ago, but it's like telling somebody, I need you to fill sandbags for 12 hours straight. If you do that, but you don't give them the intent, you just give them the instructions, then they'll spend their time and say, well, how full is full? I'm really just trying to get done with this. It really doesn't mean anything. But if you tell them, no, a hurricane is getting ready to come to your hometown and destroy everything that you love, unless these sandbags are full, you won't have people trying to cut corners because now they get the intent. So this is what Jesus is trying to do with marriage. He helps us see that God's intent helps us understand God's instruction. And what he does is he gives this one exception. Except for sexual immorality. That oneness that is reserved only for marriage, that what he says is that when one spouse breaks that, there's freedom from the other spouse to lead because that oneness has been broken. Now I bring that up again to say this is not going to be an exhaustive sermon about divorce. Matthew 19 will go more deep into that. But what I do want us to see here is this. If that's the case, and he provides this one exception, Paul's going to go on and provide a few more. It just helps us see uh, that there is a lot of room for a lot of mess to go on in marriage and for the people to stay together. Well, that means marriage shouldn't be taken lightly. It's an opportunity to reflect God who, as he talks about his relationship with the church, the metaphor that he's going to use is Marriage, a faithful spouse that remains with an unfaithful bride. And it helps us see just how deep God's love is and that he's willing to pursue reconciliation at all costs. But that's a metaphor. There are times in a broken and a fallen world with that type of continuing to pursue a a spouse may not be the wisest course of action. And so here's what I want to say with this. Just wanted to be as pastorally sensitive as I can. Divorce is something that is serious. Sometimes It is the eventual point that a relationship gets to. 
I think what Jesus is starting to say here is that although it's the eventual point, thinking about the process of divorce should never be the starting point. There was one pastor that put it like this. He'll never talk about divorce with a couple until they understand the purpose of marriage and reconciliation. Sometimes understanding the purpose makes divorce unnecessary. But there are some times where even after understanding the purpose, the next course of action is to divorce. In all cases, it's, it's unfortunate. And it is a cause of weeping and sorrow and mourning. I wish that we could spend more time on this, and we will in the weeks to come. But I think as Jesus moves towards words, the first thing that he wants you and I to see is that in order to understand God's instructions, we have to understand his intent, what the goal of it is. It's not an either or. It's not relationship or rules. It's not either or, purpose or process. It is one comes before. Understand the intent and then understand God's instructions. Verse 33, as we move on and get to words, it says this. Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break an oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. Then he's going to go on to say this, but I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it is God's throne or by earth because it is his footstool or by Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head because you can't make a single hair white or black. But let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. What you'll find in Matthew 5 is six times Christ will say, you've heard it say, but I say to you. One thing that he's trying to do there is show that he's king. So regardless of what you've heard, he's going to bring an interpretation that is absolutely authoritative and he's going to talk about all of life. In the previous ones, he's going to say things like, you've heard it say, don't murder, don't commit adultery, uh, those things. And those are direct scripture quotes. Here, he's going to say, you've heard it say, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. And what you'll find out is you can go and search through your whole Bible and there is not a single scripture that says it just like that. Do you know what this is? It's a combination of at least a few scriptures. They'll be up here on the screen. They should all be on one side. It's a combination of Exodus 20 where it says, don't misuse the name of the Lord, your God, because God will not leave anyone un. Punish, or don't take God's name in vain. Yeah, yeah. Leviticus 9.12. Oh, 19.12. That's my bad. The wrong one's on the screen. And, and it just says, don't swear falsely by my name, profaning it. 
Numbers 30, when a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to put himself under an obligation, he must not break his word. He must do whatever has promised. And I'm just trying to give all this background so that it makes sense. Here's what took place. You had the religious leaders of the day combining verses to highlight what they felt like was the most important thing. And so what they said is, no, no, listen, the most important thing is that if you make a vow to God, then you have to keep it. It's binding. But if you don't make a vow to God, then, yeah, there's things that can come up and it's okay if you break it. So what they did was they took God's law and they narrowed it into their favor. They found themselves more careful and calculated with their words, not so that they could be more trustworthy, but the more careful that they were with their words, the more loopholes that they had to get out of commitments that they didn't want to keep. And so you have folks that take God's word and distort it, and they narrowed the focus, and here's the problem. God's law was absolutely perfect. What was broken were the people that wielded it. They gave attention to being good promise speakers, but they were terrible promise keepers. And what this text is trying to get at, it is simple and it is plain for the Christian, for you and I who want to reflect God in the world. uh, Promise keeping is always better than promise speaking. We give our attention to keeping our word, not making promises. The person that keeps their word doesn't have to make promises to prove the fact that they're trustworthy. But what I want to share here is God's law, God's instructions, they're very, very good things. But a good thing placed in the wrong hands or the wrong hearts can be very, very bad. Is a knife a good or a bad thing? It depends on whose hands it's placed in. If it's placed in the hands of somebody that is homicidal or suicidal, a knife becomes a very, very bad thing. If it's placed in the hand of a surgeon whose aim is healing, a knife becomes a very, very good thing. God's good law was aimed at the preservation of relationships, but a good law placed in a sinful heart only becomes ammunition for us to dis obey God. So what Jesus does is he comes on the scene and his goal is not to change any of God's law, but to clarify where people are not living up to the dignity of their design. Somebody, a representative has to come and change and, and repair things to amend things or to say, you've heard it say, and I know that you think that it means this, but here's what it really means. Yeah, let me put it like this. On July 13th of 1865, there was an amendment made to our Constitution. And it says this, Neither slavery or involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. What you had was folks that said, hey, we know that God has created all men equal. That's a very, very good thing. But then what you had was men that were 
responsible for carrying out those instructions said, oh, well, yeah, God created all men equal, but there's a certain color of man that's three-fifths of a man. So he doesn't count. So we can make him a slave and do this. And then you had folks that said, wait a minute, we have to amend this. I know that you've heard it say that, yeah, black people are three-fifths of a man, but I say to you, they're five-fifths of a man. An amendment was made to change how people acted, how people related to this constitution. Jesus comes in and says, yo, I know that you've heard it say you've got to pay your vows or your oaths to the Lord, but I say to you, don't even make an oath at all. And what he does is he sweeps the legs out of oath-making or promising or people that spend their time promise-speaking instead of promise-keeping. And one way that he does it is he just picks apart the basic fundamentals of making a promise. In order to make a promise, you have to have collateral, right? So I can't go to the bank and apply for a loan and say, hey, I want this loan, but if I default on this loan, I'm going to put up Richard's house as collateral. What they're going to say is, ah, well, that promise is no good because you don't own what you're putting up for collateral. So what Christ is here is, is say, yeah, the vows that you make to God, those are binding, but the problem is God owns everything, so everything's binding. Make a vow by not God, but the place where he dwells, ah, that's God's throne. Make a vow by things on the earth, I promise or I swear, I want to convince you that I'm trustworthy, and if I don't, then there's something here on the earth that you can take. God says, well, the earth is his footstool, God owns that. Well, I make a vow by Jerusalem, right? He says, well, that's God's city, right? The same way as when you think about Toronto, you, you think about, right, Drake, that's his city. When you think about Akron, Ohio, right? You think about Swoop first, and then you think about LeBron James, right? That's his city. What God's saying is, that's my city, that's my stuff. So even the person that would say, all right, well, well I'm just going to make a vow by my own head, God's saying, possession doesn't mean ownership. You don't own that either. And you say, but my head's starting to turn white. I can go to the store and get a just for man box and I can make it black. That's, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, um, yesterday I took a razor and I shaved my head. I've been forced to shave my head for four and a half years, not by choice, but under compulsion. If I could control, I'd have luscious, right, curls. I'd have the, yeah, a little cut like Keyshawn and the rest of the folks here in the church have. But I don't have that choice. Even though it's in my possession, it's not mine. And so what God does is he sweeps the leg out from even our ability to make promises. And he does this because he finds that we are often more concerned with convincing people that we're trustworthy than actually being trustworthy. Have you ever been on the set of a movie and you see this like car and the actor picks up this car? It looks like a car. You're impressed by his strength, 
until you go over to the core and realize it's paper mache. There's, there's nothing on the inside. That's what he's saying about this tendency that we have. To convince people of our trustworthiness without actually committing to be the type of people that are trustworthy. That's why he tells us to stay away from these O's, that these words that we use, the way that we use our words reflects the God that we serve. Look here at verse 37. But let your yes be yes and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. So we contrast our use of our words with who the originator is. We use our words to protect our life, the things that we love. So here's what I want to do briefly. I just want to take uh, one of the most extreme examples that we see of oath-taking in the Bible, read it, and explain it, and show how this reveals some truth about us. Matthew chapter 26 starting in verse 71, or 69, and it says this. This should be familiar to you all. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl approached him and said, you were with Jesus the Galilean too, but he denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another woman saw him and told those who were there, this man was with Jesus the Nazarene. And again, he denied it with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there approached and said to Peter, you really are one of them, since even your accent gives you away. You got the southern draw like the rest of them. You're caught. Listen. Even when he's caught and find out. Then he started to curse and swear with an oath, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept. Here you have somebody whose life was being threatened. And do you know what he did when his life was being threatened? He used these oaths or these lots of words to convince people of something that was not true so that he could protect his life. And you may say, well, John, that's understandable. I mean, his life was on the line. You'd do the same thing if your life was on the line. And I would say, uh, if you say it's understandable, then I would agree with you that as we look at this, then you and I really start to understand not just that lying is bad, but why we lie. Telling lies. Robbing somebody of reality. Not using our words to reflect God, but to speak the truth, or to speak a lie instead of the truth. We always do that to protect what we feel like is our life or our God. So every life that you tell Every lie that you tell is actually a matter of life or death. Here's what I mean by that. If your God is approval, and you think that what I need most out of life is for people to think well of me, for me not to disappoint them, that if I'm robbed of that, I don't know what I'll do, I'll be devastated that when you don't return a call, 
you'll lie and say that you never got it. And you won't even think twice about it. When you commit to do something, and then you get to the time and it actually comes with a cost, oh, I have to give up something to be faithful to my word, then what you'll do is you'll lie about it. You'll present this case where you cannot commit to actually be a trustworthy person, but you still get the approval of the person that you love the most. And even in the trivial things, we see how small our God is. We would forsake the God that created it all for the approval of certain people. If your God or your life is control or power being able to control the narrative about yourself, when humiliation comes in or you've done something that is absolutely humiliating, you won't be able to be honest with God or anybody else. And even when you're caught and you're found out like Peter, and God says that the truth will set you free, you'll still hold on to it. To, to because you feel that to tell the truth, you would lose that thing that matters most to you. Do you see how we spend our time trying to talk about the degrees of lies? We spend our time calling out presidents and politicians on how much they lie because we think that there's more at stake, not knowing that the same seed that's there finds its way into our hearts and even in the small things, what we're saying is that there is some other God that I want to serve this, something other than the God of the Bible that is more trustworthy. So this is why he takes it out of the realm of, I'm not even concerned about the promises that you make. I'm concerned about how you live. When, when you say, yep, yeah, yeah, the simple, ordinary ones. Do you know why? Matthew 5.16, he says that he's brought a community here. He's provided us with everything that we need. And our goal in the way that we live is to let our light shine in such a way where people see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. And what you find out about God is God is a God that simply keeps his word. Do you know why your Bible starts out with God creating the world and not just that he created the world, but how he created the world so that you would know that God is trustworthy. That he doesn't have to make this big show of things, but he can say, let there be light, and light's there. That there's no distance in between his words and his actions. And once he's trustworthy, do you know what we believe? That when God says good things about us, those good things are true. So when God says there is an inherent dignity in all humanity that we don't have to believe the lie that we're worthless we don't have to believe the lie that we're less than we can look and say everybody that has lived has been created with the dignity that comes from God we can believe the good things that God says but that also means that we believe the bad things that God says that that dignity has been disrupted and distorted because of sin. That although we're created with dignity, there is something fundamentally wrong with us 
that's shown by when God gives us the knives of his word, of his law. What do we use it for? To hurt or to heal. But then God doesn't leave us in our destruction. God speaks another word of salvation. That he's going to send his son to, to, to purchase this bride for himself. This unfailing commitment to those of us that have been faithless. And do you know where relationship with God, do you know what it's all about? It's all about this one word, faith. And do you know what faith is? Taking God at his word and responding appropriately. But throughout the Bible, God isn't the only one that speaks. Everywhere that God speaks, Satan has a contrary message. So God creates Adam and Eve with dignity and says, y'all are full. And Satan comes along and says, God told you not to eat from that tree because you're not full. There's something else that you lack. There's something else that he doesn't want to give you. Go and get it. So he attacks the good things that God says about us. But then the bad things that God says about us, the fact that God says that we're broken from birth. And all of us experience a brokenness, sexually or otherwise. But we live in a world where Satan is still speaking. And the things that God says are broken that need to be controlled or redeemed, Satan's saying there's nothing wrong with that. God says that we need salvation, we need a savior. Satan would tell us, you just need to try harder. You just need one more chance. That's that's all that I need. All right, I just need one more chance. This time I'm really going to do it. I'm really going to stop. I'm really going to work and try to abide by God's law. I'm really going to be good this time. And we have a choice. Whose word are we going to believe? The one that created the world and actually made it with his words? And that when it fell apart... He redeemed it. Or are we going to believe the one that's told lies from the beginning? And our hearts are so broken that even when faced with this truth or with this fact, our hearts still lean towards this way. What's God going to do with unbelief, with this unfaithful spouse that he has? He's going to send his son. Here's what we didn't talk about with Peter's story. Before Peter denied Jesus, Jesus told Peter, you're going to deny me. All of y'all are going to run away, but I'm going to come back and get you. And Peter says, no, 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 no. I disagree with your word. I'm going to stay faithful. God says, nah, Peter, you're really going to bounce on quick. And, And he says, He multiplies his words. Even if I have to die with you. I'm putting my life on the line. Christ saying, well, your life isn't yours. You you can't even control the hair on your head. I see that little spot in the back of your head, Peter. It's already starting to bulk. And Peter's faithless. And he goes outside. 
and he weeps bitterly after his words prove false and Jesus' words prove true? But do you know what Christ does? He raises from the dead. Says, I've paid for your sin, for your shortcomings, for your lying, for, for the God of approval and acceptance and respect that you've lived for. And I'm going to bring you back to, to myself. Peter, you thought that my approval of you rested on how well you performed. But that's not true. God's saying even when we're faithless, he's going to be faithful. And he brings Peter back to himself. At the end of the Gospel of John, for every time that Peter denied him, those three times, Jesus said, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And each time he said, you know I do. You know I do. You know I do. And after experiencing God's love, the faithfulness of God's word, and reflecting what God says is actually true. It changed the way that Peter uses his words to the point where you get to Acts 4 and they give him a chance. Peter, we're going to set you free. We're not going to beat you anymore if you, you just don't use your words to lift up Christ. And what he says is, yo, I've got to obey God rather than man. I'm going to continue to use my words in a way that reflect my God. And Peter goes to the grave. He actually dies confessing his Lord. What changed? Not his resolve. What changed was being utterly convinced of God's love for him as a result of seeing the way that God responded to him in his failure. The same pleasure that he has is what you and I have. That as we fail, as we prove ourselves untrustworthy, you and I don't have to sit back and to say, all right, this time, all right, I'm really going to tell the truth. I'm really going to tell the truth. I'm really going to tell the truth. But we can take things a step deeper and, and say, I lied or I wanted to lie. Why? What am I trying to protect? Matthew 5 starts off, blessed is the man, blessed is the man, blessed, with all of the blessings to remind you that because of the blessings that God has provided, you are in risk you are at risk of losing nothing substantial by telling the truth. You may lose the respect of your peers for a time, but you have the admiration of God. You may lose platforms, your ability to provide for yourself. And you find yourself absolutely needy. And then you can be reminded that being needy is only a bad thing if you don't have somebody willing and able to provide your needs. But if you have somebody willing and able to provide those needs, then being needy is a good thing because the more that you need and the more that you confess that, the more that you have it. The way that we reflect God's words of this utter truthfulness is not by trying harder to tell the truth, 
It's by being reminded of the fact that God never lies. And if God never lies, every promise that he's made in his word will come to pass. So when he says, I will never leave you or forsake you, you can be absolutely honest with God because he made that promise knowing full well the things that you'll do that you don't even know that you'll do yet. Imagine the beauty that comes from something as small as always telling the truth. You have a community that speaks cautiously. That spends their time being promised keepers, not promised Speakers living up to the commitments that they've made. And when they don't, they don't lie and maintain this sense of pride. They humble themselves and ask for forgiveness. Are you tired of being the kind of person that you never disappoint people with your words, but you always disappoint them with your actions? kind of person that will always say yes to things. You just feel so enslaved to the approval of people that when they ask you for things, you'll either say yes or be silent and have to say no. I want you to know that you're free from that. Your acceptance, your worth is not based on how well you perform. It's based on the perfect performance of our Savior that's come before us. And here's the real blessing of a community of honest people. A community of honest people is the most welcoming place because a community of honest people crumbles any foundation of hypocrisy. When we're honest, it's the most welcoming place Because nobody thinks they have to be perfect to get in. Two things take place when people think they have to be perfect. They either pretend and find themselves involved in the same hypocrisy, or they come to conclusions about Christianity and don't want anything to do with it. But what a blessing where people can see none of us are perfect, and we all mess up, and we all fail, and we all commit to do things that we don't come through on, and when we don't come through on those things, we are completely honest because we know that we cannot lose the thing that's most important to us, the approval of our Savior, and so it gives us the freedom to be honest and to be frank. So what that produces are fathers that are dependable to their families. That when they say they're going to be home on time, they come home on time. When they say they're going to be faithful, that they're faithful. And then as their kids grow up and they hear about God as father, it's not a roadblock. Friends who are reliable, who come through on the commitments that they make, even at great cost to themselves. So that when people hear that Jesus is a friend, what a friend we have in Jesus, they think of friendship as a good thing and not a veneer or a fantasy. 
Husbands that are faithful to their wives. Wives that are faithful to their husbands. So that when the Bible talks about God as this loving spouse, that people see marriage as the blessing that it is and not something to be fearful of. Even our word to complete strangers. When we walk by folks and we don't have any money to give them, And we say things like, just hang on, I'm going to go and get some and come right back. Have you ever said that to somebody? What's the first thing that they say? You ain't going to come back. Because they live in a world where nobody would go out of their way for complete strangers. Ah, but we have a God who went out of his way completely for strangers. And didn't just go and get us something, but brought us back into his home. A little piece of honesty like that is one of the ways that we let our light shine in a good way so that when we spend our time on Wednesdays walking and talking about the goodness of God, people see, oh yeah, I've experienced that. Our words are powerful. They reflect the God that we serve. Like the sun reflects the moon. And the God that we serve shines brighter than any star or sun he's created. What a blessing that we have as a church to reflect him with something as simple as words. Your words are never just words. Every one of them matter. And even the smallest one is incredibly powerful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you that you would help us to use our words rightly. Help us to take advantage of the blessing that you've provided for us to speak and to communicate. It's a stewardship that we don't want to take lightly. And I pray that you would give us the grace to remember every one of the words that you've spoken is absolutely true. Everything that we need, we have in you. And we don't have to protect the things that we have in you, Father, because you're the great protector. Help us to reflect on your faithfulness so that we can reflect your faithfulness in our words. It's in Jesus' name we pray.